0: Get ready to unlock the secrets of converting more leads into high AOV. That's average order value uh, customers with Chaba Borsashi, uh, a former uh, psychology. And I, I know that I butchered your last name. You're gonna no give us actually correct... you crushed it. <laughs> All right, thank you. A former psychology researcher turned direct response marketing consultant and sales funnel copywriter, Chava. Uh, spent years struggling to get his company off the ground until he decided to master the timeless fundamentals of direct response copywriting and get this he broke down 100 proven sales letters in 100 days and that's what the episode is about we will we will unpack that and unlock uh, secrets from those hundred sales letters uh, he helps uh, ambitious online uh, businesses increase conversions and plug the holes in the in their funnels in this interview, Chaba will reveal the breakthrough persuasion method of neuroplastic belief shifting. Wow, that's a mouthful. We will we will unpack what that means, and share case studies of his successful campaigns. So get ready to take your business to the next level. Chaba, welcome to the show.
1: Awesome to be here, Savir. Thank you so much for the intro. Super excited. Yeah. So let's
0: uh, before we get dive into the technical topic. Uh, I would love to like establish your background and how you transitioned from being a psychology researcher to direct response marketing consultant and sales funnel copywriter.
1: Yeah. So as you can probably tell from my name, I'm not a native English speaker because actually I was born and raised in a small um, little town in the Transylvania region of Romania, although I'm ethnically Hungarian. But yes, it is that Transylvania from from the movie Count Dracula. Yes, although I promise <laughs> I'm not a vampire. But uh, you know, it's a very different culture to what you know uh, I, I, I I work in nowadays. Uh, and during my teens, I was always interested in reading about tons of stuff uh, about the human mind, about the mysteries of the universe, in the sense. And I always wanted to understand how the world, including the human mind, works. So after I finished my high school. I, I, was, I was interested in psychology and I wanted to apply to a degree in psychology, but my parents were like, you know, you should get a real job. So I applied to a business degree um, instead, but I didn't like it so, so much because I, I always felt like a rebel in this regard. So I also applied to psychology later on anyway, and uh, I finished both of them. And I started working as a researcher, as a psychology researcher, specializing in cognitive psychology, especially when it comes to motivation and intrinsic motivation, which is like doing stuff, you know, from an internal motivation. Uh, Nobody's forcing you to do something, but you want to do it. And this ties in beautifully later on with the persuasion things that I discovered um, over my career. So uh, after a while, I wanted to apply to a PhD um, in the Netherlands in uh, behavioral neuroscience, but unfortunately I didn't get in. So I was like, you know, maybe I should do something in the private sector. So I applied to, to work at IBM as a sales support spe- specialist, but I realized that, you know, corporate culture isn't for me either. So then I became a direct salesperson in a wealth management company, which was really cool. Cause I had to make like 50 to 70 cold calls a day. So I really, it, it, it Busted through my objections. It busted through my limiting beliefs. But uh, after a while, I'll discover that you know their products weren't really that good, and uh, I wouldn't say they were ripping off people, but I just didn't really enjoy the the culture there. So then eventually, uh, some of my friends were already doing copywriting and 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 digital marketing uh, on the side or as full time, and they were telling me about this. And I, when I first heard about copywriting, I was like holy shit, like, how come I didn't hear about this before? I studied psychology and business, but nobody talks about this. And this is as real as it gets. This is like in the trenches, uh, you know, practical. Uh, it, it's a practical methodology. So I, I I, became a freelance copywriter originally, and I started working in the trenches, started working on different, uh, you know, uh, for different clients, different niches, e-com, uh, digital products, coaches, you uh, Courses, book launches, whatever you can think of, and um, after a while, I also started, you know, creating my own content. I started uh, gathering email subscribers to my own email list, and then I never looked back since then.
0: Yeah, with online uh, with online uh, businesses, one thing that most people don't realize, right? Uh, especially, I mean, given your psychology background. What they don't realize is you're constantly testing consumer psychology, right? Uh, yeah. How do they consume? Not, not, I don't mean consume products, but consume your content because that's what they're consuming first. Whether it's video, audio, uh, text, uh, email, social ad, social post, any of those kinds of things, they're consuming your content first. And when they uh, and and what's great about the the medium is that you are um, you're you're making certain assumptions and you're testing those assumptions uh, with with the with the consumer. If it works, you're scaling it. If it doesn't work, yeah. you know as long as your ego is not attached to it, because <laughs> yeah. we will talk about ego and, and a lot of uh, business owners and how e- they attach their ego to results, and that actually is detrimental to their business. You know, but if you keep it completely uh, objective to like the goal is to do X,Y,Z and let's learn what we learn from it and then move on. I think uh, you use consumer psychology and basically your site, whether it's for lead generation or e-commerce conversion, definitely you know if you learn from it, you're gonna do really well. I mean that's from my experience. Mm-hmm. But if you attach ego to it, it's a disastrous
1: mm-hmm. failure. Yeah, no, I totally agree with this. And one of the reasons why I fell in love with uh, direct response marketing in general is because it's all about scientific advertising. It's all about measuring. It's kind of like program evolution, if you think about it. And uh, just like you said, if you attach ego to it, you're not going to scale. Maybe you can win some awards of being creative or something like this. But uh, you know, ultimately, it's about the numbers. Exactly, exactly.
0: I would rather take the check than, than any kind of awards because some of the, even some of the awards I can tell you are fabricated, right? Totally. You're, you're yeah. paying for the award. You know? yeah. So that's not yeah. an award, you know, that's not um, whenever because there's two aspects to you, right? Uh, one aspect is you do this uh, uh, sales letter uh, unpacking and you learn that. But then there is the entrepreneur side of you. You're mm-hmm. trying to establish a company, right? Yeah, you are. You know, I've done this over 75 times on this show with entrepreneurs and founders. There's always, um, you know, struggles, but with struggles comes learnings that you learn about yourself, about how to do things and or how to avoid certain things in business. What were some of your early uh, struggles and on your on your journey to to becoming this uh, direct response marketing consultant?
1: Yeah, I love this question. And so so few people actually talk about this. Everybody talks about all the successes, but nobody talks about the struggles. So I think most, most of my challenges relate to my upbringing. As I said, it was a very different culture, Eastern Europe, post communist You know, uh, my parents were socialized in a way so that if they stand out in any way, the secret police is gonna take them away. Wow. So everything, everything was super dangerous and super, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I directly heard from my father the life lesson of like, just try to be average. Don't, don't, don't try to, stay out, to, to stand out at all. Just try to be average, lay low, and just do what everybody else does, which is completely the opposite of what you need to do to build a company, right? Especially in the US or with US audiences. So I think m- most of my struggles were related to limiting beliefs because of this, imposter syndrome. And um, lots of introversion. Not saying introversion is bad. In fact, it's one of the best skills. I mean, it's good as a copywriter to be introverted because you can focus more on the pains, fears, hopes, and dreams of of people. But I also had to learn how to behave as an extrovert because I had to network. I had to get on calls. I had to get on podcasts like like I'm doing right now. And and, uh, I really had to work a lot. On this, especially around the imposter syndrome, because my parents, they're super conscientious people, both of them are engineers, but nobody is in my extended family ever had a business, ever, right? So uh, these skills I had to just pick up by 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 observing or by getting coached by some people eventually. But before getting mentors, I made almost every mistake in the book, right? I got ripped off by bad clients, I got cheated, I got ignored, you name it, right? Um, fake coaches, fake fake coaches, coaches. scope creep, all (laughs) these things, especially when you start out as a freelancer. uh, I mean, the world, there are lots and lots of sharks out there. But it was my fault ultimately, because I didn't know how to set expectations properly. I didn't know how to communicate with them, how to value my own work, right? So I was trying to figure out everything my, my own. And then eventually, I realized that I just can't do this alone. And for good reason, right? So I started joining more and more coaching groups and programs. And eventually, I got a few really amazing mentors uh, in the direct response copywriting and marketing world, like Kevin Rogers and Brian Kurtz, who really taught me lots of cool stuff about being not just a great freelancer and business owner and, 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 uh, and a copywriter in general, but, but like how to be an awesome person who, who can also deliver value and make people's lives better. And that helped a lot.
0: You know, some of the challenges I can tell you that one, because I, I've lived a very similar kind of life, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, when you don't have a north star in within your mm-hmm. inner circle, inner circle initial in in our initial part of our lives tend to be our parents, maybe your teachers, maybe your your friends that you keep, and maybe they're your if you if you're like you know if you do interact with your friends' parents, you might have access to them. But if you don't have that North Star, especially in an environment that you just mentioned, where the entire environment was set up like that because of socialism, right? Because of uh, Eastern Europe culture and stuff like that, that it's it's no longer like limiting beliefs. That's the norm of the day. Mm -hmm. Like that's the expectation that everybody needs to do. And especially if your parents are engineers and you want to become this business person, they go like, that's not us. We don't do that in our family. Mm-hmm. Why don't you go and become a chemical engineer, electrical engineer, computer engineer? That's what we do. Right. And then mm-hmm. now you you are you are sticking out like a sore thumb. Parents are engineers. And this guy, I don't know, he's not going to make anything of himself. He's, he he yeah. wants to go into business
1: and psychology like they confuse psychology and philosophy for a long time and even today like some of my relatives they, they think that i'm scamming people on the internet or something so how do i make money i don't know he does something on the internet but we have no idea
0: till now i've been married to my wife for 25 years my in-laws don't know what i do my <laughs> my wife barely understands what i do yeah. barely understands what i do my son is the only one who actually interned for me and realized what i do after wow. after being his parent for 23 years he finally figured out what i did <laughs> wow it's a lonely road it's, it's sometimes it's hard to explain Chaba. it's just yeah, hard to yeah, explain to people and then if if they can relate to something that's very similar or kind of similar to what you do i go like yes that's what i do right yeah i don't even argue with that anymore you know mm. I, I don't i don't want to argue and explain for 30 minutes some something to someone that doesn't doesn't understand it has no context in, into that, you know, yeah. because of whatever their beliefs or whatever it is. I'm not here to change their mind in that sense, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. so um, mm. let's let's use an example. Let's dive into the topic. Mm-hmm. Right. There are different types of long form, short form uh, type of content. A lot of people nowadays are so used to writing really uh, short-form content. A lot of them, because of Instagram captions, TikTok, this, you know, uh, you know, other platforms. I mean, uh, as you can see, this is a 60-minute show, and on top of it, every episode gets 2,500-word article that even goes deeper into the topic, not just uh, not just the video interview, right? So I'm a big proponent of long-form, but I would like to now sales letter long-form what does that kind of look like let's define it and unpack it and and from your learnings let's get started on the topic
1: sure so of course just like you said there's this uh, beef between between certain uh there are cer- certain paradigms in the direct marketing world uh short form long form and i'm not saying short form cannot work because it can and sometimes you need short form sometimes if the audience is sophisticated enough uh, like Apple doesn't need long form content. It just needs like the, the, the newest ad that, that prompts you to buy an iPhone or something. Or if there's a, a discount on AirPods Pro or something, then, then you're much more likely to buy it. However, the thing is with cold audiences, especially if you're selling information, um, you need that uh, long form in most cases because you need the real estate to shift enough beliefs, especially nowadays when most audiences are sophisticated. And when I say so- sophisticated, I'm actually going back to Eugene Schwartz's legendary book called Breakthrough Advertising. He came up with the idea of, of the stages of awareness, which is the basis for funnels. That's why funnels exist nowadays, because of this one single concept uh, and stages of market sophistication. And what this really means is that the more people have seen different ideas in a marketplace, the more advertising they've seen, the more um, pitches they've been exposed to the more uh, skeptical they become the more they raise their guard up and the more you have to really innovate in your in your pitch or in your marketing campaign to really get their attention and get through all those limiting beliefs too because you're not going to be the first one if you're let's say if you're in the fitness niche and you want to sell a new weight loss program you're not the first program that they've encountered your your chances of that is almost zero at this point and of course as most people most people experience failures with most programs courses products right so eventually after the tenth rejection or failure that they've experienced they're gonna be like yeah you know maybe i just can't lose weight because i have bad genes or something and it's very hard to sell them something even if it works because you have to get through all that limiting beliefs so that's why long copy can help you in this because it allows you to expand ideas it allows you to to uh, bring up uh, lots of proof points. The more proof you bring generally, especially for a skeptical audience, the more you can overwhelm them and the more you can disarm their their defenses in a sense. sense. And if you look at all the the major direct response companies who sell supplements, the Agora companies who sell financial newsletters, all the health uh, publishers as well, they still use uh, 50-page long sales letters because that's what works they use emotional stories and they use ve- like extremely long form copy sometimes and if you're like who reads long form copy well the qualified people read them and you know i think there's there's debate on this as well but i personally think that if you have a prospect who's on the fence right and you give them just a few more paragraphs with some bullets or some FAQs or something that's relevant for them, that might be the one thing that actually knocks them off the fence. While if you try to conserve space by being short form, maybe maybe there's just one last uh, you know objection they have that wasn't covered by your marketing materials, and that's why you, you you lose the sale.
0: So from my experience, actually, I love the fact that you 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 mentioned that like that one thing, mm-hmm. right? Uh, in my experience, especially optimizing e-commerce businesses, right? What I say to all of my clients, and this is the improvement that I do to their business, and that's how businesses scale under me, right? Is consumers have a thousand objections not to buy from you. Yes. Not to buy. Right. Uh, I don't like it. Did it, the site does not load fast enough. They didn't have enough images. The back label was missing. Uh, it didn't really tell me if it was gluten-free and my whole family is gluten-free, <laughs> right? Or I'm a vegan, you know, whatever that yeah. is, right? Or I, I don't know if if this vacuum cleaner part is going to fit into the Hoover vacuum cleaner that I have, right? Any of those kinds of things. Or you did a fabulous job on the, on the product, right? Everything looks great. They add the cart and they're ready to check out. I don't know if I want to give my credit card to this company. I don't know who they are. Right. I don't know if it's going to be safe, right? To oh, I'm on a mobile. Why why don't they take Apple Pay? I I could just press my button and check out. There could be a thousand different things consumers are going through, and especially with sales letters, right? If you can go through that journey with them, introduce them to who you are, introduce them to what you're trying to propose. Who else social proofs? Like Mm -hmm. who else is doing that? What are the benefits of the program? What can they get from it? And on and on and on and on. Yes, it could be a pretty long page, but th- that's where you put in your apply now, you know, join now, yeah. buy now, whatever. Uh, through those breaks, so that you can get them at least from an e-commerce perspective. And I want to unpack it for the sales letter too. Mm-hmm. But like when you when you have that sort of a page. And when you're talking about this, are you talking mostly about like education and information type products like Agora Financials?
1: hmm. I mean, those are the types of companies that primarily use long form sales letters, but you can use a long form sales letter to sell any physical product as well. You can use direct mail for that pretty successfully as well. In fact, a lot of people don't think about this, but direct mail is, al- is alive and kicking and it's really effective uh to sell and if you if you go back to the old school copywriters that I that I started breaking down originally um, they were always using sales letters to sell something uh, even if it was like like uh, blue blockers for example Joe Sugarman's famous blue blocker ad that was the second uh, sales letter that I broke down and it used it wasn't super super long form but it still had like 1500 words or something like that and it's it talked about the story and it wasn't necessarily about the product too much right it was about selling the dream of how your life will change after this
0: so um i do want to talk about um kind of the you mentioned you dropped a couple of names so far right like the old school masters mm-hmm. one thing i learned uh from like gary V. you know we uh, I, I co-founded an agency with him right i i learned that when he started his journey he looked at every form of tv advertising tv programming uh tv uh content radio content things that because that was that was the only place he could go because the field that he wanted to be in was still burgeoning right to Mm -hmm. kind of learn from it so you can learn from old mr Mr. miyagi if you're a karate kid (laughs) fan right i always use that analogy right you can always learn from from old masters and uh because the medium has changed doesn't mean that the principles uh would have changed so can we can we can from your pov what is the importance of like studying these old masters and even even books from 1950s you know related Mm -hmm. to copywriting and advertising and their techniques and and can they really be transitioned and transformed Mm -hmm. into digital and social space now
1: yes so that's a that's an excellent question and um one of the reasons why i decided to do this 100 day proven sales letter breakdown challenge and it mind you it wasn't just breaking down sales letters, but it's also it was also about teaching it back in daily youtube videos so that i can also internalize all the all those things but one of the reasons why is that um i noticed that there are tons of gurus nowadays tons of courses especially nowadays oh my god so many courses but Everybody just buys all sorts of courses and nobody does anything with them at this point because everybody's like full of them. But uh, most of those gurus, most of those courses are just a rehash of the same old information. And sometimes it's even a a dumbed down version of those informations because most people, and sometimes maybe correctly, consider today's audiences to be, you know, uh, less as if having less patience. As if wanting easier solutions, the TikTok generation, 1.7 second generation, 1.7 yeah, uh, <laughs> attention span and stuff like that. But I always think back to Dan Kennedy, who's like a legendary marketer who once Definitely said that no. you know, yeah. yes, the attention span of gold uh, goldfish is like three seconds, and even if most people have the attention span of a goldfish nowadays. Do you want goldfish as a customer? Do you want to build a company? And do you want to? Can you even have strong lifetime customer values with people who have a three-second attention span or one and a half-second attention span? Probably not, right? So it's totally okay to just just filter out tons of people who don't, uh, you know, c- can't identify themselves with this. That's fine. But what I noticed is that if I if I went back to the the, the the people who invented the game of scientific advertising itself, who invented the game of direct response, like Claude Hopkins, who wrote a book called Scientific Advertising, and he came up with the idea of measuring stuff. Like imagine a media buyer nowadays uh, who's not measuring the, the performance of, of, of his ads, right? That would be crazy. You would look at them like, whoa, that, that can't work like that. Um, so that's why. That's why I went back. And what I discovered was that these people uh, yes, in a sense, they had it easier because there wasn't that much competition back then. However, they also had it way harder and they had to work way harder than us because they because the whole marketplace wasn't so easy for, for creating transactions. There were no credit cards. There were no 800 numbers. There were no emails. There were no checkout pages or something. Somebody had to receive... Uh, a package in the mail, like a direct mail something. They had to open it. They had to sort it. They had to read it. Then they had to cut out the little coupon. They had to find an envelope to return it in. They had to find a stamp. They had to bring it to the post office. Then they had to wait like one week to get the package, right? It was so many hurdles. And I think these these old-school OG people, they, they because they had to work harder, they were way better at coming up with genuine big ideas that were unique. They were way better at shifting beliefs of people and, uh, and uh, shifting the very identities of certain audiences, uh, I would say. Like, for example, Gary Halbert's famous coat of arms letter. This was a promotion that at one point made Gary like $300,000 a day, and this was in the 60s. sometimes and it was the whole ad had like 370 words or something like that so this wasn't long form but the idea behind it was amazing and it was an e-commerce thing because basically what you were selling is was like a picture of like a family tree that's it
0: Mm -hmm. very effective
1: yeah absolutely absolutely um and and one thing they, they also came up with that i think is foundational and i think it's the multi-billion dollar secret that a lot of people don't consider today is this one buying belief concept so uh instead of pitching a product right away or something uh these 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 old school masters worked really hard to establish the the one buying belief in people before even mentioning the product sometimes and uh, this was really important because it, it it disarmed all their objections and uh they really felt like yes this ad itself is educational and gary ben who is like uh, the uh, the most successful copywriter alive he's retired now but he has the most pro- pro- he has the most promotions that beat controls for big companies i i think one of his promotions a single one of his promotions bought him a house in the Hantons just just from royalties alone so in in the 80s or 70s or something wow. like that so he really He's, he's amazing at this. And, and he was the one who basically really popularized this idea of, of education-based marketing. Because he figured, you know, the best way for people to read your ad is to not make it look like an ad. is to disguise it as something valuable. And that's why we have challenge funnels nowadays, webinars, um, book funnels, and stuff like that.
0: You know, I, I, I think it's at varying degrees, though, Java, right? Some of them are... Uh, they, they disguise themselves as, and it's very transparent that it's a it's a, supposed to be a webinar to educate, right? Mm-hmm. But from the from the moment it starts, you know, because mm-hmm. a thousand people show up, right? You can see it like thousand people are attending, and then it drops from thousand people within the first minute or two, it drops down to like yeah. less than fifty. And I think maybe that's intentional because those fifty are now interested, really interested, and and even if you're trying to sell them something. They want mm-hmm. to continue, but it's no longer an educational webinar. It's it's a sales page. Yeah,
1: yeah. although you know, uh, as with any tool, webinar is basically just a tool that uses some principle. Uh, they eventually get less and less effective as more people start in, s- start using them, right? So at this point, most webinars don't use the education based marketing principle properly. But you have other ways. You have uh, boot camps and challenges and stuff like that that still work really well. Um, even to this day. But eventually they will also become less effective. And then you have to innovate. You have to come up with something else again.
0: Definitely. I mean, change is the constant, right? <laughs> I
1: mean, I think there was there was a big launch, like probably the last year or the year before that, a big crypto launch. There were scores of affiliates, high, high profile affiliates for it. And I don't even know how much money the whole campaign made, but I don't know, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, and it was basically Um, pitching some sort of NFT or crypto coaching program eventually, uh, including a proprietary algorithm that they also give you. But the whole thing was positioned in a way so that it was almost impossible. It was like a documentary movie. And that's why when you look at Agora Financial uh, VSLs, video sales letters nowadays, they often look like a documentary or like a dialogue between, between people. And it's still a sales letter, but nobody realizes it until uh, until like 30 minutes in. But by that point, you have you're the only one invested. belief. Yes, you're invested, and uh, you have uh, you have the one buy-in belief, uh, you know, established.
0: So one of the things that I've seen, whether it's in a in a letter form, email, website landing page, or good old school infomercials, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Every marketer kind of taps into that, you know, good marketers actually uh, tap into fear, hope, yeah. dream, pains, different pains, right? I mean, if, if you, I don't know how the commercials are where you are, right? In Transylvania, but I don't, have, don't watch
1: TV, but probably the
0: same. You know, the infomercials show you somebody who is clumsily trying to uh, close, a, close a container and it keeps on falling apart and it's yeah. a mess. And then they tell you how you know how fearful that is or how clumsy you are versus uh you know this new product that came out that the lid on automatically gets on on top of it itself you know and then you're sold on it because oh you know what this is one less thing that i have to deal with you know and mm-hmm. it's a pain point for me mm-hmm. so do you think that um it, that is that part of like good marketing to tap into like all already existing beliefs and pains and fears and hopes and dreams and all of those kind of things to kind of uh, create your that ideal customer avatar. You can say that, oh, Joe, this person Joe versus this person Cindy, right? Mm-hmm. This is who our customers are, and this is who what they what their lives are like, and these are their pain points. We're gonna go and poke at it, you know. Mm-hmm.
1: I absolutely agree with you. Like they're they're critical, especially if you want to go deeper, um, and especially if you're if you're engaging in a sophisticated Uh, niche, like health, wealth, pretty much anything at this point. Um, And the reason why is because, and this again goes back to Eugene Schwartz, who wrote Breakthrough Advertising, which is still considered to be the Bible on copywriting and persuasion, like applied persuasion psychology nowadays. You can only get it from one place, from Brian Kurtz, and it costs one twenty five. dollars and there were times in which it was out of print and copies were, you could have copies on eBay for $900, $1,000. Wow. It was so, 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 so valuable. But Eugene Schwartz said that instead of trying to manufacture desire, you should tap into the already existing desire and and, and pains and fears of your audience because almost it's, it's almost impossible to uh, manufacture desire. And you see even huge companies do this all the freaking time like they come up with their marketing department comes up with a new car idea or a new you know we've all seen this coke did this with some some other flavored coke ford did this with a few models uh you know a few years back uh that eventually nobody wants but it sounds amazing uh for these high level marketing people but the problem is it doesn't move anything in people so one of the key things that these old school copywriters really mastered is that instead of trying to uh, appeal to surface level benefits and and features and stuff like that, you have to go two or three levels deeper. You have to find something that's so powerful, people actually wake up in the middle of the night at 2 AM sweating, thinking about that stuff. That's what you want to solve for people. Um, And again, you have to just uncover. And this comes from research. You have to uncover their deepest desires not just that they want to make more money but uh i don't know just giving you some random example here but that let's say they're seniors and they actually want to buy that health supplement so that they can um they, they want to buy the hearing aid because they're afraid that their children are going to stick them into nursing homes because the first mm-hmm. sign of someone losing their hearing most people start associating that with uh, with 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 all sorts of cognitive you know impairments and they're going to be like oh oh uh my parents are getting or or or, you know uh the old guy is getting a a little you know maybe a little bit of, of alzheimer's or something like that better get rid of him and i'm sorry to say this like i'm not saying some people do this but they some people do feel this they would never tell you this but they do feel this and uh the whole uh you, you know, earpiece and auditory help industry realize this early on, and that's how they pitched it, in a sense. Wow. Not How you know gigantic you hear. here? Yes, and not how you know you hear extra frequencies or something, because ultimately that's what not people care about. Yeah, it's yeah, about I mean, various fears.
0: A, you know, that's a, that's an interesting point. Some because some marketers, especially if if they come from, uh, and we we talked about your parents as uh, engineers, mm-hmm. right? What I find is people who are very of, very much of a technical background, what they t- tend to do is they overemphasize the technical abilities of this apparatus that they yeah. created or equipment or tool or program or whatever, but they don't bring the value of what value or fear would the, would the person have by be, that they can benefit from by using this product. Not mm-hmm. the fact that it has 25 milligrams of I don't know iron or mm-hmm. vitamin E or vitamin yeah. D or whatever. No, what what is it really? What what is the benefit that they're getting? How does this improve their life? And, yeah. and if the answer is whatever that answer is, that's how you market it. Not not the fact that because then you're you're marketing that product to only a very technically savvy um, mm-hmm. person who understands that. Oh wow, they put twenty five milligrams of this thing in a capsule that's Mm -hmm. impossible everybody else uses five milligrams this is 25 milligrams five times more i'm gonna get this because it's gonna benefit me they're making the assumption but you're not taking them there as soon as you take them there now you opened up a a broader market for your product Mm -hmm. because you explained what that is
1: absolutely and the 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 more complicated your product is the more you have to do this and again you know at this point some people could be like yeah but look at apple they always like they just they just advertise their features yeah apple can do that because it's a two trillion dollar because they're apple they're apple and, they're apple. and <laughs> mcdonald's is mcdonald's and tesla is tesla right but before no, they no, get just, to this... just,
0: uh, just wait a second Chaba. even with apple let's talk about apple right even with apple Uh, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak Mm -hmm. used to have go to college colleges and explain what this new computer thing Mm -hmm. that they created. They had to explain it to people and go through the technical details. That journey has been more than 40, 50 years of of messaging over time that now when they say, oh, it's a tiny little thing that holds a thousand songs. Mm -hmm. I'm sold because I know what because the credibility they have Elon Musk with Tesla. Elon Musk with SpaceX, when he says that Mm -hmm. I'm going to go to Mars. okay. when is that going to happen? You know, you that's the next question you ask. You don't ask how you're going to do it. You're going to say when, you know.
1: Yeah. So that's very important, actually, because they spent a lot of time and effort doing this, but also they tapped into the already existing desires of people. Because when the iPhone came out, nowadays, you know, everybody has an iPhone almost. But like when the iPhone originally came out, it was about envy. It, you were selling something that, I mean, Apple was selling something that if you bought, you kind of unconsciously felt like you were above certain people. And I know <laughs> it's not politically correct to say this or something, but there are this, this concept of the seven deadly sins, if, if you heard about these. Yeah. Envy is one of them. Greed is another one of them. And this, this, these are the things that really motivate people. Same with Tesla. Yes, you can say that it's an objectively better car in some regards or something. But ultimately, I personally believe that some most people or lots of people who buy Tesla, you know, they buy it because they want to feel like they're superior to all the gas guzzlers out there. And they it's not about saving the environment. That's a part of it. Yes. And it's a good thing to have. But it's also about envy. It's also about having shown that you've made it and you're technologically conscious and you're such a cool bro. Yep.
0: So actually, you just uh, sparked something uh, in my head. It's a matter of wanting something versus needing something. Yeah. You know, when,
1: really when you're important.
0: buying Apple or Tesla, you want it. You want it. And whatever price it. they're going to come up with, you want it because it represents more than that thing. So it's yeah. not just a car. It's not just yeah. a phone. It's not just, you know, whatever. Insert. You're it's buying a just feeling, just a ultimately.
1: Watch, yeah. You know? You're buying a feeling, ultimately.
0: Yeah. And it makes you feel a certain yes. way. And besides giving you that certain type of a status, it also gives you. So I'll, I'll give you a horrible example, right? I live in the United States, right uh, here. Now we are conditioned that uh, smoking uh, cigarettes mm-hmm. is bad for you. There's a lot of education. There is a lot of a ton of it. Every carton box, everything else here says don't do it right. I travel to certain countries and if you're well to do, Meaning that you earn enough, you you wear nice clothes, you have a nice car, you should be smoking. And if you don't smoke, that means that mm. you don't have enough money. Your mm. status is not really, you're not that rich, that you can't afford to smoke, mm-hmm. right? It's also those kind of beliefs too, that, that, it, that even the status thing goes into certain very traditional categories, product categories, yeah. that... In in one culture, it's a taboo and, and you shouldn't be doing it. And you're well-educated through health. In the other one, it's a status symbol.
1: Yeah. I think Starbucks, for example, also tapped into this nicely because I think one of their earliest taglines was something like affordable everyday luxury or something like that. Affordable $5 luxury, coffee. Yeah. yeah. Affordable luxury, which meant that people started feeling like, yes, I can also be part of the cool kids right yep. now. It's, it was about status in a sense.
0: Definitely. Now, in your bio, I stopped because I I mentioned something gigantic in there, and I need you to unpack it for me. Mm -hmm. Neuroplastic belief shifting. Mm -hmm. So what does it mean? And what does it mean to uh, converting high converting messages? And
1: how do you utilize it? Sure. So if you Google this, you're not going to find anything about this because this is a concept that I came up with based on lots of insights that I discovered when I did the, the sales letter breakdown challenge. So basically uh, okay let's let's break it down into three parts. the neuro, the plastic and the belief shifting. So neuro comes from this this channeling mass desire thing. So instead of trying to uh, uh, you know come up with something and force it on people, you have to uh, channel a desire onto your product that already exists in your target market. Uh, so if it's status, you have to channel that status onto your product and make your product desirable because that's how you're going to sell it. And the reason why I call it neuro is that this actually creates like if you do this right with marketing campaigns and the old school copywriters did, the, did this, too, is that neurological changes are happening in, in our brains when we read uh, marketing related to this. Uh, because um, are you familiar with the Andrew Huberman, by the way? Andrew Huberman. He has a pretty cool podcast, uh, the Huberman Lab, which is about like a neuropsychology, biology, endocrinology podcast. And he explained this beautifully, actually, that in order for changes to happen in in our minds, and if if you if you want to go from non-buyer to buyer status, some change has to has to take place in your mind, because you know you have some limiting beliefs that prevent you from buying into the buying state, right? In order to have this change and neuroplasticity in general, which means changes in the brain, you have to have three things that happen at the same time in your brain. You have to get alert, and this is done by releasing epinephrine, which is kind of – is it okay if we go a little technical here? Because I don't want to bore the audience, but – I think we're 40 minutes into it we can be technical go ahead the the first thing that has to happen is you have to get people alert and this happens by releasing epinephrine this is also you know adrenaline is also a version of epinephrine it's just epinephrine is released in the brain as a neurotransmitter at the same time you also have to be get focused which is done by another neurotransmitter called acetylcholine and this basically focuses your alertness on something specific because otherwise you know, it's, change is not possible. And the third thing is that you need dopamine as well because you need to generate repetitions. You need to get into this alert state, get focused on something, and re- repeat it a few times. Just like if you, I don't know, want to learn how to throw a basketball, right? You have to get in that state, you have to get focused, and you have to uh, like uh, re- repeat it a few times. And if you do it in a fun way, then dopamine gets released in your brain, which means you're more likely to repeat it later on, which means you're going to see better results later on. Now, how does this whole thing tie into copywriting and and persuasion and neuroplastic belief shifting? Well, it's how the, the old school copywriters actually use this, because in order to get people alert and generate this rush of epinephrine, they came up with big ideas, for example, that teased that this new solution that they're selling is radically different and superior compared to anything else people have seen before. Or the engineer's headlines that basically shocked people out of their zombie state. Or they wrote leads. And when I say lead, it's like the first few hundred words of a sales message that evoked feelings like, wow, I, I haven't learned this before. I'd never heard about this before. Interesting. Tell me more. No way that can't be possible. You know, stuff like that. This is how they get people to get alert." And Then the next stage, uh, the way how they get people focused and release acetylcholine was that they, with their copy, they used lots of mental images. They conjured vivid mental pictures in their minds, because we are very visual creatures, we humans, and actually when you start imagining something, you're much more likely to go, go towards it. But they also use specific details in their copy, they also, as we mentioned, tapped into the, into the already existing pains and, and problems and desires of people. All this thing got people focused because you know how it is. Like If something like an ad touches you to the very your very core, you immediately pay attention. Or if a movie or something, it, it, it kind of punches you in the gut. Or if a story punches you in the gut, you immediately pay attention. And suddenly, if your mobile phone rings or something, you, you're not going to get distracted and you will consume that long copy. I mean, just look at people, how many Netflix shows they're watching. So the final thing to generate repetitions was that they made their, their messages easy to read, enjoyable, relevant to the reader. They used engaging stories. And they also used lots of repetition, too, like giving the pitch multiple times when the time is right for it. So all the, the combination of all of these things that I, that I realized that nobody else talks about, is the culmination of the neuroplastic belief shifting framework that i teach now in my programs too sweet
0: so if if i were to uh use an analogy of an ice cube right mm-hmm. an ice cube when we start as a, in our consumer journey right when I, when something like that hits us right a, a sales letter or a landing page or an ad or anything like that right if we use the analogy of ice meaning that i am mm-hmm. a cold lead right. Okay. So it's, let's use that right um and i believe that you go through this melting of the ice or mm-hmm. melting away objections right uh, I'm, I'm making it very artistic i'm feeling very artistic today
1: i love it i love right?
0: it you're, you're melting away that ice so if you use that analogy what what are those kind of uh you know uh, what is your approach to those objections like if you think about each layer of that ice as you're melting uh-huh. it away and can you give examples of how, how you've done that in the past?
1: Yes. So, um, and I love how you can conjured mental, vivid mental pictures too, <laughs> with this eyes. So it works. So, uh, um, it's the
0: trick of like, don't imagine a pink elephant on a yellow, <laughs> tiny ball, you know, dancing for a little mouse.
1: And that's what it's you're in your do. head. Exactly. It's in your head. Exactly. I told you not to do it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, getting back to your question. So, Obviously, first we have like this ice cube. It's hard. People have lots of limiting beliefs that you have to kind of peel away like an onion in order to expose their core. Basically, uh, it's like Inception, the movie Inception. You have to you have to just insert your idea into the conversation that's already happening in their minds without them realizing it. And I know this might sound a little like too abstract or something, but um, but but this is how it works actually people have their internal monologues or something why they can't do something and if your if your message is good enough and it's persuasive enough suddenly they're gonna eventually just realize that oh maybe i can do this maybe i am possible of losing weight with this new course because like take an example p90x when it came out right i remember Uh, that there were so i I bought one by the way i bought it nice Nice. So there were so many weight loss solutions out there, so many different types of, of, of ways to lose weight. But P90X was very smart because they came up with a unique mechanism. They said that, you know, actually, they come up with a unique mechanism of a problem and a unique mechani- mechanism of the solution. And the unique mechanism of the problem was that, you know, it's not your fault that you weren't able to lose weight before, regardless of how many courses or programs you've already bought, because... You weren't using, I mean, all those programs, they taught you something that wasn't correct. Because the reason why you couldn't lose weight is because you were doing the same things over and over and over again. But look at this research, and this comes the proof point. According to this research, there's this thing called muscle confusion. And and it's a different and superior way to get the same result you've always wanted. And it's only possible through the pre-90x protocol. Because we are the only ones who actually custom built something just for this, and it was crazy. Like people loved it, and it just made sense, right? Suddenly, people were like, "Oh, of course, it makes I sense." I need to confuse
0: was, my muscles. <laughs> yes, I was,
1: I was, I was deadlifting in the gym, and I was doing all sorts of, of stuff. I was doing Pilates and stuff like that, but I wasn't confusing my muscles. Of course, it makes sense. I need to confuse now, them and how to do it I don't know but this program does and yes. then that's it it's an easy 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 buy from there so that's how you actually um melt that ice cube basically what you need in the beginning is a strong big idea and if you think the people at Agora and the reason why I'm bringing up Agora all the time is because they're an over 1 billion dollar a year company all selling 30 or maybe like 49 dollar subscriptions uh, but at the same time, each customer in the long run is worth like $500. And, so and they really... are
0: one of the most recent uh, yes. hi- hyper-growth companies in, yeah. the, in the newsletter industry.
1: Yeah. They have all the best copywriters, all the best ideas. And they constantly, you know, uh, Joe schrieffer one of the, uh, you know, I think it, he might still be the CEO of Agora. I don't know exactly. But he was really bullish on this idea of the big marketing idea. You need a big idea because that's what ultimately differentiate you from the competition that's how the end of america sales letter you know uh in that came out in 2010 i think after the uh financial crisis was one of their biggest promotions ever because it just had this idea of like yes everybody was i mean not everybody but some people were using the idea of the dollar using its world reserve currency status but how mike palmer who wrote this promotion actually did this was that you know this is going to be the end of america it was, it was all just basically a grim prediction and ultimately it tapped into the fear the already existing fear of the audiences that you know you know how 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 fearful markets are when there's a recession or something and how greedy markets are when there's a bull market but because he made the bold uh, prediction at the right time and had the right big idea even though it was a 50-plus page sales letter, it brought in more than 600,000 subscribers. It brought in $30 million in the front end and over $300 million uh, in the back end because of this. And it used a big idea. It teased something that's different and, and superior, or it gives people a new hope, in a sense. Most of the campaign is is... Or most of the marketing message itself was spent just proving that that this idea exists. And once it was proven, and you established the one-buying belief, that's when they gave you the pitch, which was so natural at that point. And this, yes, this was a sale, like a long-form video sales letter, but this can work in a in a in a full-stack marketing campaign too. You introduce the big idea with your lead magnet. You get people on your email list. You uh, systematically deconstruct their false beliefs you just prove that whatever you have works with different case study emails and stuff like that and once they start believing that oh this is different and this is kind of it makes sense then you start pitching the idea
0: so you know there's there's a topic that always um uh you know you know always is interesting thought process to go through, right? In every field, right? if you if you think about the legendary uh, rest in peace, Muhammad Ali, right as mm-hmm. a boxer, right? A- amazing boxer, like historical legendary, right? would he if he was at his prime, would he be able to, if you time shift him to now, you know mm-hmm. uh, with any of the current boxers, would he win? right? That's mm-hmm. always a it's an interesting thought process. So you mentioned a lot of old school, you know, mm-hmm. masters like like Gary uh, Halbert, Eugene Schwartz, Gary Venga, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How would they fare to today's like digital and social marketers and uh, e-commerce people and stuff like that, mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, the Agora Financial copywriters of, of today, right? Yeah. How would they, if, if I put them head to head, you know, what, what do you think is going to happen?
1: Um, I love the question, and uh, I asked Brian Kurtz about this. And Brian Kurtz is like the go-to guy who knows every single, you know, high-level copywriter. And he he worked for Boardroom, which was also called Bottomline Personal and Bottomline Health, which was a similar um, publication to Agora. And I think at their heyday, they were doing like 300 million a year or something like that. So really big company, and they were selling subscriptions at 29 dollars a piece. Think about building a $300 million a year business by selling $29, you know, subscription. It's crazy. So uh, he said that, according to him, these old school copywriters, they would wipe the floor with today's guys uh, because they, again, they had to work harder back in those days. And I'm not saying that they would wipe the floor with every single one. There are amazing, like incredible people out there. I think, I don't know, Russell Brunson is amazing. Ah, uh, Ivaldo Albuquerque is one of the key copywriters at agora companies. He's amazing. Todd Brown is amazing. And there are countless other people even today who, who do amazing stuff as well. But in general, the way how Gary Halbert, for example, used buttery smooth copy, silky smooth copy to just 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 get to the your core emotions and just make you feel like you know him. and it's it's the most natural thing ever to buy from him. I mean, it's it's very hard to let replicate those things nowadays. And in fact, you know, I wanted to test this actually. So after I broke this down and I started developing this neuroplastic belief shifting framework, I wanted to test this with a real life on a real life project for a real life client. So if I could do it using the old school copywriters' as methods, it means it must be working, right? Because um, I'm not an A-list copywriter or something like that. But this just shows you how systematic this could be. So. We tested it with a client, and he was selling a um, uh, a virtual event called Strategic Alliance Live. And originally, the sales page was uh, it was like a, a multi-six-figure business. I think at, in, in the beginning, the uh, the sales page was typical, like you know, uh, get everything out there, big claims, and like just buy it, and and all sorts of those aggressive stuff, aggressive pitches. But they were still doing pretty well because they sold lots of backend stuff on the three-day events themselves. So I came in, I completely rewrote the sales page. And this example is also useful in showing how long-form copy can can help you get better customers, even in the long term. Because yes, we increased we 3x conversion rates uh, on the front end uh, for the sales page. But what we realized is that we also 3x conversion rates on the on the live event itself, that were high, that was selling high ticket stuff. So the original conversion rate on the event was twelve point five percent, and we raised it to thirty three percent. And wow. uh, the show up rates increased massively. Originally, the show up rate was forty percent. We increased it to sixty two percent, which is like more than a fifty percent bump. So everything started working for us. And then um, originally the the events were kind of losing money in the beginning. But with this page, um, the quality of people, because we persuaded them, we educated them before they actually showed up. So they paid more attention. They consumed information more. They, put, they, they were live. And this was like a, a live thing. And most people who showed up on day one also showed up on day three. But we generated 640000 in cash and also $50 million in signed contracts. And obviously, wow. this is a hypothetical uh, number, 50 million in signed contracts, because uh one of the key products being sold was also a hundred thousand dollar high-ticket, super high-ticket done for you uh program. But still, it was nine-in-day difference. It was a nine-in-day difference. And because, you know, um I was I was just using basically the compilation of all the all the insights that I gained from these old school copywriters.
0: Wow, well, you know, thank you for. Sharing all of this, you know, I always ask my my key question from every guest that I have, amazing guests that I have on the show. What is your number one? Uh, I usually ask for hundred thousand, but mm-hmm. you're not in that range. You're in the multi billion dollar range. Okay. <laughs> what What is the multi billion dollar copywriting secret that you have learned from cracking the code on those hundred uh, sales letters and all of these old school mm-hmm. knowledge that you have gained from it?
1: Or What is that number one uh, secret? Well, it's hard to come up with just one but if i had to pick one and this has got to sound like really simple but it's true oftentimes you know the simplest things are the biggest uh is that if you do if you create persuasive messaging for any type of campaign just talk to people don't enter into this weird writing or marketing mode because that's what we tend to do as people and that's what i also i also oftentimes feels like if i if i if I uh, sit down to write an email for my email list, originally, I enter into this writing mode. And whatever I write, it sounds a bit off, right? And that's what I see most people do. They either hire a copywriter or they do something themselves, and it sounds off because it's based off of templates. and it's like it automatically triggers people because it sounds like a pitch. It sounds like warning, pitch incoming. But if you can imagine yourself as like, having a one-on-one conversation with your ideal prospect, one-on-one. So not, I'm not talking about demographic, you know, a demographic avatar, but the one-on-one conversation with your ideal prospect on a Friday night in a bar, just talking about stuff, that's how you should approach this. And it works way better than if you try to be all like professional B2B in a sense. Because ultimately, even, even the highest CEO ever People buy from people. They don't buy from machines. They don't buy from ChatGPT even. They don't buy from companies. <laughs> they buy from people, ultimately. Well,
0: Maybe okay. if you buy
1: soap, of course, then, then you buy. But if unless you're in the business of selling soap uh, and you sell something more unique, uh, you can use this.
0: I mean, there are, by the way, I, uh, you know, I, first of all, I want to thank you for sharing all of your knowledge and sharing this research that you have done. Definitely what I would uh, recommend to uh, the audience to go visit him, visit Chaba on the web, gameofconversions.com memoirs. That's a very special link uh, on, on this show. So please access that. Uh, and Chaba has a YouTube channel that uh, I think it's linked on that page uh, that you can definitely uh, access where he unpacks every one of these uh, sales letters. And there's a tremendous amount of value content. I love that content. Again, Shabat, thank you for being on the show.
1: Thank you so much. And thank you for the great questions. I loved it. I loved having you here, man. And
0: audience, I love you too. Uh, and uh, you keep on tuning in. I, I will keep on bringing on amazing guests that can share their knowledge and their expertise uh, in specific niche fields that, that we can uh, learn from them and uh, you know make a change in our business. Thank you again for tuning in.